Every week, we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast, where we talk with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community. Today, we are in for a treat. We're talking with Dan Knossen, who is a two-time Paralympian, 2014 and 2018, a six-time Paralympic medalist, one gold, four silver, one bronze. That one gold is significant because he was the first ever U.S. male Olympic or Paralympic to win a gold medal in the biathlon. He was a Lieutenant commander in the Navy was on seal team one in Afghanistan when he stepped on an IED and ended up losing both legs below the or above the knee, uh, won a purple heart, a bronze star with valor. Uh, also this is kind of interesting too, because we're talking about cross country skiing. He grew up on a fifth generation family farm in Kansas. Uh, went to school at the United States Naval Academy, has a degree in English, then got two graduate degrees from Harvard University, a master's in public administration and a master's in theological studies. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. We look forward to talking to you. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be with you. This is awesome. So that first thing, the, the fifth generation farmer from Kansas who ends up as a cross-country skier. That doesn't happen very often, right? No, I, I, I do not think it happens very often. I, I did grow up on a fifth-generation family farm. The farming itself was not something I did. My grandfather had retired and he had associates farming the land, but I certainly went on some really fun tractor rides as a kid and, and had a lot of land to roam around. And I think that deep-seated love of being outside and, and just moving uh, did propel me forward into, into life and loving nature. That, that is something that cross-country skiing really, really has for me, uh, this connection with nature. It's why I do the sport. And so that there is, there is a logical train, although it's not of how I got into cross-country skiing, although it's not clearly evident based on my background. Right, exactly. How did you end up going to the Naval Academy? Was that something that you had always aspired to, or how did that happen? I, you know, I, I don't know why specifically I wanted to go to the Naval Academy, other than I just knew that the military was something that I wanted to do, it was, I guess, a calling. It's not so much uh, conscientious, it's just a, a direction that my life was going. I, I was lucky enough by my freshman year in high school that I had this goal of going to the Naval Academy. <clears throat> and so then I started thinking, well, what do the people who get accepted into the Naval Academy do in high school in order to get accepted? Well, they have pretty good grades. They've demonstrated some leadership, probably some athletics and some community service. So I set about orienting my high school years in that way. I also applied to the to West Point because I was interested in possibly going in the Army, but really the Marine Corps was what drew me to the Naval Academy. Uh, one fifth of the Academy graduating class actually goes in the US Marine Corps as officers. And then in my senior year in high school, I found out that I got into the, the best of the US service academies, the Naval Academy. And so I, I went out to Annapolis, Maryland shortly after graduating high school. And you're understating that to a certain extent that you had to have pretty good grades. I mean, it's super competitive to get into the military academies, right? Into the it is very competitive, and and I think there's a geographical distribution, and the service each service academy in its incoming class has representation from all 50 states in the United States, and sometimes even territories, and and in incoming students from other countries even. But all 50 states are represented. And so I think that applying from the state of Kansas may have been to my advantage. And, and to have applied to the Air Force Academy, which I did not, may have been a little bit more difficult because of the geographical proximity. But if I was applying to the Naval Academy from California or Texas or Maryland, Virginia, uh, it may have been a different story. Uh, it certainly is very difficult to get in, but uh, I was I was excited to go, and and also at the same time a little bit apprehensive because I had a 
<laughs> I don't want to say a fear, but a, a very strong discomfort of being in the water. And I didn't think that was going to be an issue if I went into the Marine Corps. But the first summer there, the plebe summer, it's kind of like a boot camp phase uh, for about six weeks. And on days that we had the pool in our schedule, and this is just to do basic drills, like demonstrate you can swim from one side of the pool to the other, or that you can float. You're not going to drown if you fall off a ship. I found myself marching around in this, in this boot camp like atmosphere, just with palpable knots of anxiety in my stomach because of having to go into the pool later that day. So I had a lot of work to do because clearly getting selected for the Navy SEAL program requires that you be not only competent, but, but proficient in the water. I had, by the end of my first year, shifted my goals around to, to wanting to be one of the 16 in my class that would get selected to go to SEAL training when we graduated. That's a fairly big progression from being constantly afraid of being in the water, being nervous about being in the water to wanting to be a SEAL where that's your, that, that's, that's your domain. You are, you are water people as, as the SEAL, right? So yeah. how did that, how did that shift work? How did you decide, okay, is it the competitive nature that you're like, okay, only 16 get to be SEALs? Is that, that's what I want to do? I think it had to do with my circle of friends, the people that I, after, at the end of the first year, we kind of had many of whom I became close friends with and many of whom later did get selected in our class to go to SEAL training, uh, that we had this common interest based on personality. And although I was kind of harboring that secret, I, I mean, I think they knew I wasn't very good in the water, but I, I became more and more comfortable in the water because what did I do for the better part of four years? I went to the swimming pool every day, stepped up to the water's edge, jumped in, worked on my stroke, worked on my breath hold, worked on underwater swimming, worked on drop proofing, worked on getting a little bit faster, worked on my stroke on and on and on day by day by day. And eventually I started to kind of like being in the water. And then in SEAL training, I was in the water a lot, got really sick of cold water, had to do uh, underwater tests that really kind of challenged me. But again, started to kind of really like this feeling of being in the water. And it has now become a actual a love of mine. I, I love to go surfing. I love to paddle my prone paddleboard on the ocean or the rivers, lakes. And so it's, it's interesting to me as I look back on the 20 past 20 plus years that this uh, fear that I had actually became uh, a real love. And, but in order for that to happen, I had to kind of at least take that first plunge and then and go from there step-by-step. Step. Right. Meet it head on daily. It sounds like getting to the pool, overcoming that, that nervousness. It's funny. I had talked at one point with Carlos Melita, and I don't know if you, you know, Carlos, who's a Navy SEAL who said that he wanted to be a SEAL and he went to, to the training you know, went to the to the first threshold, right? To to join the class to try to be a seal and jumped in the water. And the guy looked at him and he's like, You don't know how to swim. Like, what are you doing here? You know, so similar, sort of a similar kind of story to you in some ways, in that he, he might have been further behind than you were. He had to go back to his boat and he, he said he taught himself how to swim and then came back and passed it. And, and there's so many different thresholds with being a Navy SEAL. I mean, you're talking about the 16 in your class at the Naval Academy, but then you go, you go to BUDS and then it starts whittling and there are more people there, right? And, and it starts whittling that class down again. Yes, when I say 16, that was from my Naval Academy class. We had been allotted 16 billets from our graduating class to go to basic underwater demolition SEAL training. All that meant was that you got a ticket to go to BUDS and we had to divide ourselves um, amongst the 16 into three different groups. And I was in the group that went first. And so we report out to Coronado, California where Buds is. And now all of a sudden you're a junior officer in this class of about 200 or so sailors, many of whom are right out of boot camp, And some are coming in from the fleet. You're a junior officer, you're in a leadership position. There's a lot of intensity from the SEAL instructor staff, a lot of pressure. You're not getting a lot of sleep. You're getting 
ground down through daily training. And then you have this looming hell week coming up. It's a source of anxiety and intimidation. And so there's a lot going on, but I think I had been very well prepared through the four years of the Naval Academy through various selection procedures that were put in place to try to ensure that the Naval Academy graduates who go to BUDS tend to get through. And statistically, they do tend to get through because of that preparation process. Part of, I, I had read this somewhere and, and, and part of it, like they were talking about in more recent times, they needed more needed more seals than were than were actually graduating, and we're trying to figure out how they could help people to graduate more. and And it sounded like part of it was the the reason that you were doing it, the story that you told yourself when you reached the difficult time. I mean, I know for me, like that first day, just go stand in the waves, and we'll tell you when to come in. Like that might have been it for me. Like I, I, I'd be ringing the bell right there. Like I'm cold. I'm done. Uh, what, what did you tell yourself? How did you get yourself through those difficult times? Yes, uh, uh, it's it's interesting because I I really think this has to do with a combination of internal and external factors. And for me, externally, well. I showed up to Bud's training right out of the Naval Academy with five of my best friends. And we were all six of us crammed into an apartment in Imperial Beach, California, three bedrooms, two to a room. And I just, I, I could not live with myself if I had quit Hell Week or, or any other phase of training and go back to that apartment. It, it just, it, it would have been for me just shameful. There's just, this is not an option. So that's an external factor that you can absolutely draw upon. And I did draw upon that when times were getting really difficult. But then there was internal motivation. This is a big challenge. I've worked years for this. I want to do this. I want to do this job. I want to be part of this team. I want to, I want to push myself to the limit, see what I can do. And I really wanted to do that job. Or, or, or so I thought at the time with the available information that I had. And so I, I had that long-term goal. And then, and then there was just the excitement of it and the challenge in, in, on a day-to-day -day basis in doing, doing this kind of big adventure, kind of uh, as a 22-year-old, it was just exciting to be out in Coronado going for it. And so it was intimidating to show up, but especially because of the SEAL instructors who you really revere when you are a new student checking in to BUDS, but you, you start to just learn how, how to mentally process very intimidating things. And, and what you learn in BUDS and, and the beauty of this training is what it teaches you in terms of life lessons is that you, to get through difficult situations, you break it down into manageable pieces. I know I, I can get through the next minute. Okay, that's, I'm going to focus on getting through the next minute. I know I can do that. Then I'll focus on the next minute. And then the next one, you know, I don't need to be thinking about when this evolution is gonna end. I have no idea, it is out of my control. You just, just kind of learn to focus on what you can control, break things down into manageable pieces and, and, and focus on that. Is that what you did? So when you when you were in Afghanistan, you lost your legs to an IED. Uh, did, is that what you did when you came back? I mean, that's that's probably a more fundamental change than you had ever imagined in your life and a dislocation from the team, which was such an important part. How, how did you deal with that? Did you do it, deal with it in the same way? The, the, I think there's a fundamental difference between the injury that occurred uh, on the combat deployment I was on in Afghanistan and then in something like going through BUDS training or, where maybe I was pushed to my limit in hell week or what I thought at the time was about my limit. I mean, in, in Hell Week, for those who are listening who aren't exactly familiar with it, I mean, this, this week kicks off sometimes Sunday evening. You don't know when it's going to start. You just know that it's going to end Friday, that the instructors never have taken a Hell Week into Saturday. You, you, you are pretty sure it's going to end Friday, although you're a little skeptical of that. But, you, you, okay, this thing is going to end Friday. But I'm, I'm not going to sleep until probably sometime on Wednesday. So I got to do about 72 hours right off the bat with no sleep, constantly moving, 
cold and wet, surf torture, tempted to quit? Are you going to have the mental wherewithal to withstand those temptations to quit? 70 to 80% of your class of, I mean, at this point, starting Hell Week, it's maybe down to 100, 120 students in the class. Are 70 to 80% are going to get through. Are you going to be one of the 20 or 30% who can? And so that that's a very, a very in, intimidating thing. And it does push you to your limit or so, or what you think. But what you also learn in that process is that your actual limit is further down the field than what you thought it was. But, but you do have the agency in the wherewithal. You can quit if it really does get to be too much. Now I go on a deployment to Afghanistan. I'm, I'm a, a years into my career uh, as a platoon commander. So I'm about seven years into my junior officer career. And pretty early in that deployment, I, I stepped on an IED, as you, as you said in the introduction, and my teammates responded with valor and, and decisiveness to get me out of the situation. But I woke up in a hospital about 10 days later, I was in a medically induced coma, to find out that my legs had been amputated above the knees, that I had a host of other internal injuries. And so this was a very sudden turnaround, just literally a bomb going off in my life. Now I'm, as you said, I'm not part of this. I'm not ever going to be part of this team again, the way in which I had been a part of it. And that, that was actually the most difficult thing, but I'm laying there. Possibly and, any team, right? I mean, this is where your mind goes, right? I mean, it's yeah, like, what you, I'm what on the outside do? looking in on everything. Yeah. You're thinking where, what am I, how are you going to find meaning in your life? What are you going to do? What are you going to do now that you can no longer do what you were doing? that you love doing the disconnection from the team and, and, and then just practical, you know, matters. Am I ever, am I actually going to walk? I don't know. Will I ever get through surgeries and get out of this hospital? I don't know. It didn't seem like that, but the critical difference though, from seal training or hell week. Hold on one second on the surgeries. I mean, you were talking about, so you've had like 20 plus surgeries, right? You were talking about like three or four surgeries a week kind of thing at one point. Yeah. I mean, I don't know the exact number. I, I feel like, based on talking to people and trying to, my sister, who is a nurse who accompanied me really from the, she was there when I woke up to all the way through my recovery, says it's in the mid 30 range, 30 surgery. And some of these surgeries are seven to 10 hours. I was going through them Monday, Wednesday, Friday. That was my routine. I do remember one week in particular in which I had four surgeries, Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So I'm running about 30 or so hours a week of surgery time. That meant that my intestines weren't really functioning because the anesthesia coursing through my system. So, and I had this NG tube up my nose and down my throat and I wasn't able to eat or drink anything, not take a sip of water, fed by IV, hydrated by IV, but I couldn't quit. You know, in hell week, it seems by comparison kind of easy because you can quit if it really does get to be too much. But here I'm laying in this bed and I'm like, I I am in this situation, whether you want to be or not, you're just, you're in it. So I think to get to your question, there is a critical difference here between uh, SEAL training and then, and now this situation that I'm in, in the hospital. And I am convinced that the hospital situation where you don't have control is much more difficult from a mental standpoint. The not having control, which is which is a lot of what your instructors in SEAL training and BUDS or whatever were trying to get you to do as well, where you didn't know where the finish line was, where they could change the rules at any time, and, and you just had to go along with it, that you thought you had some control or you thought you had an idea of what you were trying to do, and then all of a sudden it's totally changed, but and but what is the what's the motto i mean like the only the only easy day was yesterday right yeah absolutely yeah you got it yeah the only easy day was yesterday there were some other uh, kind of words of wisdom that the seal instructors would uh would spout out such as no one cares about your pain as much as you do which is which is very true i mean it, it's it's very difficult for me to even try to articulate or communicate what it was like to go through the hospital, there were, I mean, I, I went through that whole journey as, as many people came into my room and out of my room and in my room and out of my room, or as I can talk about it afterwards. I can't really communicate this. It's similar with, with pain. I mean, you, you can't, the words only go so far. 
and and that that is I guess a dilemma. But I, I you know try to communicate the experience as best as I can, although it was very difficult. Yeah. So did you? But did you draw on? I mean, you have to draw like like when I climbed Kilimanjaro, people often they ask me, so how did you train for it? And I my answer was really everything that went wrong in my life. And, and, and really, there was, a, there was specific physical training, but it's also, it's the same kind of unpredictable nature that you don't know what might happen, and you just have to be ready to deal with whatever happens in the situation. Did you, were you able to tap into that kind of a feeling while you were in the hospital to get better, to gain some sense of forward movement? I think so. I, I think I had a very optimistic attitude by nature. I seem to be an optimistic person, but you do learn in, in SEAL training and how we to let go of what you cannot control. And there's so much in that that you cannot control. And you are just wasting mental energy by getting weighed down by things that are entirely out of your control. I think many humans and many of us get weighed down by events that are, when you think about it, actually outside of your control. So then what you do is you, this is stoicism, but you try to think about, well, what can I control? And then you focus on that. You can find some agency, some self-empowerment. That's what I was doing in the hospital. I had this routine of surgery in the early days when I was in the ICU had a routine of visitors coming in and out of the room, doctors checking on me, residents checking on me at crazy early hours, orderlies changing the bed, trying to change the bed sheet, even though I couldn't even sit up, I had a fractured pelvis, visitors coming in and out, in and out, in and out, not really sleeping. But I could, I could do some things. I could try to implement a routine. I requested some therapy bands. So I had all this scaffolding around my hospital bed in the ICU and or after the ICU as an inpatient and not doing this in the ICU. It was too, too critical then. But when I was an inpatient, rigging up these therapy bands on the scaffolding so that I could do things like arm, arm curls or tricep extensions. And just that meant a lot to me that every day at some point in that day that I was going to do this and try to uh, get some movement and, and focus on that. And then that was a way to take my mind off other things, uh, focusing on, just make it to the next visitor, make it to the next visitor or make it through the next minute when the pain was getting pretty severe. And these kind of things end up creating a sense, I think, of self-empowerment. It's pain is one of those weird ones too, isn't it? Because people so often talk about like being in the moment and pain is the thing that puts you in the moment more than almost anything. You're trying to, you know, trying to avoid the pain, you know, trying to like get out of the moment of the pain. And, but, but it keeps bringing you back, right? That pain is, is that challenge. How, because you teach resilience now. Uh, what do you, what do you teach? What's the, what's the structure of what you teach in resilience? Well, this is, it's, it's great what you said about pain, because when I, when I talk, when I, if I talk about my story or just even in, when I think about in my life, the moments where I truly was in the moment were, were because of pain. And, and it, it could be like watching a really, really, really gripping movie and you are just in this and you're not thinking about I'm watching this movie or you don't have a sense of time. But I guess that's another a comparable situation, you know, being in a really witness to a very good performance, but but pain really, really uh, shrinks your, your time span down. And, and I, I had this happen in, in the story of my injury. I had to be dragged off of a, a mountain by my teammates. And this was the most pain I'd, I'd ever been through to be body dragged over the craggy rocks that were cutting into my body like knives. And it was all I could do to try to was just to stay awake. And, but I look back on that and, and it is evident because I remember it. I didn't have a thought of logically there should have been thoughts in my brain. Like I may not make it through this. I may not see my family again. I might die. There, there, those thoughts just weren't there. There actually wasn't any space in my brain because, because of the pain. So maybe there is something to, to uh, pushing yourself in, in ways that you can control signing up for a marathon or signing up for a 10, you know, you can learn a lot about how to confront 
other situations in life that may be out of your control by putting yourself in situations where you are going to experience pain, coming up with ways to process that. When I talk about resilience, I actually use goal setting as a practical framework to get through difficult situations because if you can, it's, it's okay not to have goals, but if, if you do set goals that are maybe long-term in nature, that realizing that that is a powerful way to overcome an obstacle. Your, your long-term goal a few years before climbing Kilimanjaro was to climb that mountain. And that was a, a wonderful source of motivation, but sometimes maybe it, it felt too far away. That could have been discouraging the more you think about it because it, it, it seems daunting, but you then set some midterm goals or maybe this year's goal I'm working on, on, on certain physical training, I'm working on altitude acclimation. And, and then maybe you set some short-term goal, weekly goals and, and daily. And this is how athletes function, but it, it really, I think, transfers quite well to the business world, to the military, to uh, people's personal lives as well. And how to, how to approach situations that can be difficult, but where you have a strong desire to overcome that obstacle. Now, the the pain it's interesting i mean you talk about the talk about the pain in some ways as being as living like that that you're going through pain is actually the reminder that you're continuing to live and and even finding those moments in our lives to to encounter that pain as a reminder that we are living when you got out of the hospital how did you because you're talking about the goal setting how did you how did you find your way? How did you end up navigating those waters? When I was nearing the end of my physical recovery process, which actually took about two years, I transferred from Bethesda Naval Hospital to Walter Reed Military Medical Center. There were two major military hospitals, which are now combined and integrated. But at the time, in 2009, 2010, they were actually both in Washington, D.C., but separate. And the physical therapy for prosthetic rehab actually was occurring at Walter Reed. So I had to transfer. And then I'm now in this environment where I'm surrounded by dozens of injured service members. And some of these people were really critically injured, missing maybe three or four, in some cases, four limbs. That environment fostered for me a change in perspective because when you're by yourself in a hospital room, and you're not seeing that, you kind of, you kind of can, can have a woe is me mentality. But when you get into this now physical environment, we're doing physical therapy, it becomes a little competitive. You also just can't help but thinking what, you know, this person next to me is, is missing three limbs. And, and really, really, how could I feel sorry for myself? And this isn't, you know, to say that being in that environment, just, it made me feel better about myself because other people had it worse. It's, it's, I think, I don't want it to be like that. I think it, it is more about just recognizing the things that you should be grateful that you still have and, and then focusing on that. I was getting to the end though of this physical therapy. I was approached by one of the liaison members from the US at the time, US Olympic Committee. It's now US Olympic and Paralympic Committee, but this representative was specifically trying to recruit people for the Paralympics invited me out to a sports camp in San Diego, California. I said, sure, that sounds awesome. A trip to San Diego sounds great. Can see some old friends out there, get introduced to Paralympic sports. The Paralympics was intriguing. And I thought I'm probably gonna wanna do something along the lines of cycling or running. But I got out there and the they had a, a variety of sports that we could try, adaptive sports, which are new to me now. I had an athletic background, but now this is all different and all takes Except for swimming, it all takes specialized equipment and you don't know what you're doing, but it was a great introduction. I had just started running a little bit and so just started running on like on prosthetic legs. So you're an above the knee amputee, which a bilateral above the knee amputee. So you have no knees, which makes it a whole lot harder to walk on prosthetics as well. Right. So it, it, it does. And running it. Running is, is in, in our human progression, we, we crawl, then we walk, then we run. As they're teaching injured service members at Walter Reed how to walk, 
they they put running after. But I actually think that running is easier than walking because the running leg, now I, I get, as you said, I am a double amputee above the knees, but the knee prosthetics for walking are very heavy. It requires a lot and they bend. So it, they both bend underneath you. It requires a lot of strength and a lot of balance. In contrast, the running legs are light and they don't bend. And you can try the knee unit, but as a double amputee above the knee, you know, it's kind of suggested, you know, run on straight, straight sticks, just straight pylons, they don't bend. And you just swing your leg wide. It's a little weird in the beginning, but you get used to it after like a week. Uh, walking walking is is actually much more fatiguing and difficult than running. But I got, I got out, you know, I, I was thinking I, I wanna, I'm gonna run. I wanna run for the Paralympics, but I found out that the competitive events for a double amputee above the knee involve just 200 meter and 100 meter sprints. And I thought, ah, it's too bad they don't have a mile or a 5K. I, think, oh, you know, I could be a pretty good mid-distance runner. I had kind of that background anyway. They didn't have it. So, uh, I, so I, I was thinking, well, what am, what am I going to do? But they're actually, funny enough, at this sport camp in San Diego, there was a ski erg machine set up for indoor biathlon. And the coach from the Paralympic biathlon team, which also was a cross-country ski team, was asking me, hey, you know, you were in the military – you, would you be interested in trying biathlon in a few months when it's winter? Biathlon. I actually was a little confused because I thought biathlon was uh, swimming and running, but that's duathlon, I guess. But biathlon is cross-country skiing with target shooting. And they were telling me about it. You know, a lot of the races are in Europe. The travel is awesome. You're in snow, you're in the woods, you're covering ground. And then with this sport, you're racing hard, skiing, and then you plop down and you shoot five shots. If you miss, there's consequences. Okay, that, that sounds pretty cool. So I went out to uh, a few months later, the first uh, on snow camp of the year, which is for the US, for US cross-country skiers, it's typically at the Rendezvous Trails in West Yellowstone, Montana. It was just dumping snow that year. I showed up totally unprepared. <laughs> Now, were you were you typically a good shooter? Well, I mean, I I think my my teammates in the in the SEAL teams would laugh at me if I did say that I was because as an officer, it was not my job to be a shooter. My job more was along the lines of mission planning and execution of those missions, as perhaps assault force commander or ground force commander. Um, but I think for someone whose primary job was not to be the sniper that I was always a, a fairly decent shot but I'm here to say that we'll see how this works in the comments from your buddies so yeah yeah, yeah. I, I am here to say that anybody who thinks they are a good shot will be humbled if they try biathlon in the beginning for many it's because they don't know the cross-country ski technique but even if you did that the cardiovascular demands and then the precision of the shooting is is very very humbling and it in in doing this for several years now i find that static shooting is quite easy by comparison well i mean cuz what you're doing right so you are you're pretty close to redlining right when you are when you're cross country skiing so heart rate is somewhere what 150 60 180 are you up to 200, that kind of thing? And then dropping it down to shoot? Each, each person's heart rate is, is kind of unique to them. Uh, it can be a function of age and fitness, but, but people, some people just have naturally have higher heart rates than others. So uh, for me, you know, it's, it's, it's probably I'm racing in the 160s to maybe low, maybe low 170s. Most people in the, the last lap of a biathlon, the last lap of any biathlon, never has shooting at the end of it. You always do your final shooting and you have still one more lap to go. And that's when you really put it on and you cross the finish line, uh, red lighting. I mean, maybe exceeding that red line, but you're, you're racing at a threshold prior to that. And if you are, if you're going absolutely all out right up into this, the shooting mat, you're either gonna miss your, a shot or two or more or it's going to take a long time to actually get those shots off in hopes of hitting. So most, and, and with, with more training and more fitness, 
you can ski faster, but with less effort or ski faster with, and, and maybe that heart rate is what it is. But if you back off for 30 seconds prior, because you're fit, it'll drop quicker and you can be a little more calm and collected as you, as you shoot. So, uh, you know, you're not absolutely gasping for breath when you're shooting in a biathlon. Right. No, you can't do that. So where no. would, where do you like to be when you're shooting? Cause well, let's describe a little bit of this too, right? So you are in a sit ski. So you have, you have a, a carbon fiber frame that's mounted to two Nordic skis, right? Yes. And that carbon fiber frame is light and it's double pull. Uh, people who cross country ski, if they do it, um, if they do it, in an adaptive way, or if they do it just kind of in, in the way that cross-country skiing first developed, and they, they know what double pulling is. It's basically the two poles hitting the snow at the same time along in conjunction or coordination with kind of a core hit, a, a crunch with your, with your abs. And so it, it's definitely upper body. And I would say that in a biathlon, I'm kind of, I'm skiing the first lap, at, depending on the length of the race, but it's probably a seven or eight out of 10. And then that very last lap is, of course, you're kind of, you're going 10 out of 10. You are. And so, so you're in this sit ski and, and you've done one lap, you come into the shooting arena. What happens when you come into the shooting arena? How do you, how do you approach the position to actually shoot? Sure. And, and one of the challenges that we as Paralympic biathletes face that Olympic biathletes do not face is that they can come into the range skating all biathlon olympic races are now with the skate technique not the classic ski technique they're skating into the range they can take their poles off put the poles down get in the prone position or in their case sometimes they half the time they shoot standing half the time they shoot prone but the poles are off but we're coming in with a sit ski and you're faced with a few options as an athlete that you can decide what you want to do you can either take your take both poles off in which case after you're done shooting you have to get up and put your poles on you can't just get up like the olympic biathletes do start skating away and put your poles on we can't move if we don't have our poles on so that's a time delay you can take one pole off but you have to put you have to maybe maybe you have the other one on and, and you pop up and you have to grab that other pole get a couple pole strokes get some momentum and then get it on or you can leave the poles on, in which case now you are shooting in a prone position, strapped into a sit ski, which is, which is connected to both of those skis with the binding system, and you have two poles on, and the, the poles are getting jammed into the snow, or you know they're, they're, it's just awkward to shoot like that. So we, we definitely have challenges with the shooting, although we only shoot prone. You only shoot prone, and so you're lying on your chest basically with your ski behind you, right? Your, your, your sit ski behind you. Is that how, so like the tips of your skis are pointed in the opposite direction of your head. Is that, is that how you're lying yeah. down? Yeah. As, as one who has full use of my core, I am trying to get into the most stable shooting position, which is both sides of your rib cage on in contact with the shooting mat. And then, so then because I'm now my, sit ski is sort of inverted. So the tips of the skis are now driving into the snow behind the shooting mat and the, the back end of the skis are kind of coming up over my head. Now to add to the challenge for some athletes, some athletes who do not have full use of their core cannot get into a position like that. So they are shooting on their side. In fact, the rib cages aren't even really uh, touching the mat and, and they're being kind of propped up by the forward elbow. And, and that to me is just, just incredible that, that they can shoot like that and hit shots kind of in a sideways position. But this is, this is a, a, a Cirque du Soleil feat just to get into position to actually shoot. It's, it's not very comfortable. And, and from so, someone who, you know, thought, okay, you know, I'm going to be good at this sport right from the beginning because I can shoot. Well, I wasn't skiing fast enough, which is the number one. Nobody is a good biathlete if they can't ski fast. That's just across the board. And then on top of that, because of the awkwardness of the shooting position, either you know, one pull on, or in this case, my case, I'm trying to leave two pulls on so I can get up and ski away fast, that this is just, it's just really awkward. So a lot of the 
a lot of the training is just getting comfortable in the shooting position because you need to be able to fairly quickly get into a consistent shooting position that replicates the position you had when you zeroed in the air rifle prior to the race. Because if you were all shifted in a different way and now in the race, when you were zeroing, which is just simply sighting in the rifle for the conditions that given day, when you're racing now, if things are different, your body position is different or you're just not consistent, you, you can you can maybe be taking good shots, but they're actually gonna be misses. The mechanics of the shooting can be correct, but it could be missed because the body position was incorrect, if that makes sense. It, it, it does make sense. And it makes, it makes some sense because I, I've done it once, right? I think you and I actually did it once at Soldier Hollow. This was early on, I think, in your career. And I'd been doing a little bit of cross-country skiing and kind of wanted to learn a little bit more. And it was a, it was a veterans program, I think. And it, I was just amazed this at is how amazing. much everybody knew about shooting. You know, these guys would say, oh, well, this one, this one sighted high right. And I'm like, are, are you sure? Like, I, I, I'm just trying to, trying to get it, like, just point in the right direction. I don't even know what I'm talking about. So, yeah. so did that captivate you? Did you, did you go, this is really cool. This, this whole cross-country skiing and shooting and managing my, my physiology in order to be able to be successful? It did capture me. It, what, what captured me more than shooting, I had done plenty of shooting in the military. And, and honestly, like shooting an air rifle doesn't really, that in and of itself doesn't really do it for me. But it's, it is, for biathlon, it is that combination of the physiological stress combined with the precision of the shooting. But more than anything, what captured me was being in the woods. I, I just loved, loved trail running before I got injured. And I was really craving that connection with nature, covering ground under my own energy, in, in the woods, mountaineering, trail running, all these things. I loved, loved doing it. I would take trips. I, I took a trip, a pre-deployment trip to Patagonia to hike. I took a post-deployment trip, trip to uh, Yosemite to hike. And, and uh, this is prior to my, my injury, of course, but I just really like being in the woods and cross-country skiing, as I saw, is the only way this is really going to be feasible. I had started hand cycling. I was mm -hmm. living in DC, kind of wrapping up my physical therapy, but Hand cycling in DC is not being in nature. You know, you're getting honked at by cars. At best, there's Rock Creek Park, which is awesome. But I didn't live in, a, in an apartment that I could just cycle out the door and get into Rock Creek Park safely. And I had been starting to run, but I'm like, you know, no way am I running on these prosthetics on single track trails in the woods. And so the cross-country skiing was this avenue, uh, a platform for me to cover ground in the woods and, and you do it on snow you got to dress up a little warmer but there are it, it is an amazing sport uh, there is a tranquility to it that is really i think just unsurpassed because you can you can find yourself in a place like west yellowstone just surrounded by pine trees falling snow and you're just gliding across it everything's quiet and it's, it's really just for that i mean i want to keep cross-country skiing long after I'm done racing just for the, the connection with nature that is, is very difficult to have any other way. It's an interesting, interesting point that you make because it's such, an, it's such an essential love that brought you to it, that brought you to the sport. But then there is a performance aspect of the sport. And this year, preparing for Beijing, 20, uh, 2022. And it is, it has been a bit of a weird time leading up to the games. I mean, to say the least, right? How, with COVID, how, how are you preparing? How do you feel about things? You just came back from Germany, you said you're actually trying to stay awake. So we're, we're helping you stay awake tonight. How do you feel about your preparation and what are you thinking about Beijing? Just having not seen a lot of your competitors too. Yes. It's, it's a great question. And, and we uh, even, what I really miss, I guess, is a, is a full season. And I also realized that, that this is 
in the grand scheme of things, hardly, hardly anything to be complaining about, but, but at the end of two seasons ago, at the very end, we, we were in Sweden and, and the night before the first race of the world championships, this was March 11th or 12th, when everything really in the U S kind of just shut down and competition canceled, no race, no first race, even uh, fly back to the U S but I had a season leading up into that one. And then this last year was mainly domestic, but we did get to go to Slovenia at the end, which was just an amazing venue for racing, gorgeous scenery and got to ski uh, in a beautiful area. And so I really can't complain and uh, got to do some awesome domestic skiing this past winter that I probably would not have been able to do otherwise with the pressure of training and travel. So I like to look on the optimistic side and I got to you know, ski in some beautiful places, uh, Sun Valley in Idaho and Medhow Valley in Washington state. And that was awesome. And I, I focused on that. And it, and it was for me a little bit of a break because uh, I did some individual excursions out to both of those places, a little bit of a break from uh, formalized training, but still skiing and going into Slovenia, was a chance for me to see kind of where I stood in relation to the competition. And I was a little bit disappointed, but also realized that that competition kind of got thrown on at the end. And it wasn't like I was really priming up and training for that one specifically. So I learned a couple of critical things that I needed to focus on this past year of training as we're, as we're building up. And so making those adjustments and going forward. And I think we're going to have a fairly, it's hard to say we need to be flexible, but it seems like we're going to have a competition in Canada in December, as per the calendar that we're going to have uh, rescheduled world championships in Lillehammer, Norway in January, and then come back. And for a few weeks in February, hunker down in probably Montana, train, and then head out to China. And that it's going to be a pretty exciting season. So um, I, I love the intensity of the, of the games year, just because you're really just so focused and everything. You want to make every day count. And so I'm trying to just cherish it and, and, uh, and then just focus on what I can do to best prepare, knowing that it's not just giving it your all, on the race day. And certainly that is very important, but everybody's giving it their all, you know, it's the games and, and it's, it's giving it your all in the weeks and months and even the years leading up to it. And, and that is where I know that I, that I have. And so regardless of what happens in China, or whatever, some results sheet indicates that I know that I gave it my all and that I, I tried to enjoy the sport along the way that I took those side trips to places like Sun Valley, Idaho, or Metow Valley, Washington, to really just uh, appreciate the sport for what it really means to me, which is that chance to, to be out in the woods in, in beautiful scenery, covering ground. How is it, because you live in Massachusetts now, is that right? Or That's correct, yes. How is it living in Massachusetts? One, you've been living in Massachusetts and you've been going to school, I mean, up through 2018, right? That is correct. I'm no longer in school, but from 2015 to 2018, I was a full-time master's student balancing training with school using the GI Bill, which is uh, such a wonderful benefit for veterans that I encourage any, any veteran who may be listening to, to take advantage of. And for me, this was, it was a question of whether I'd be able to accomplish my training Certainly, I knew I was going to miss some competitions here and there, but I was able to, to do the training I needed to do, and, and now I'm, I'm more fully focused on, on training, and I, I do miss being in school, and, and if anything, even from a performance standpoint, I miss being in school because it took my mind away from any sense of expectation in competition, any sense of you know, I've, I've been sacrificing, I've been doing all these workouts, I should get, I should, you know, I should get this result. That I just was kind of like, uh, no, you know, I've been in school, like nobody expects anything. And I don't either. And just going to go out there, have fun. And this is an awesome distraction from studying and, and hitting the books. So I'm going to enjoy it. And that was my mindset in 2018. And it, it paid off pretty well for me. That sometimes is the biggest challenge of being a full-time athlete is that you're, 
identity, your success is all wrapped up in how you perform. And it's not necessarily just how you perform on the competition day. It's how your workouts go that day. You know, there's, there's no other distraction to be like, no, I'm still, I'm still doing some stuff. That's okay. I'm, I'm all right. Now, what are you going to do? What are you going to do afterwards? I mean, you have a lot of education and it seems like a, a variety of different forms of education, you know, from theological studies to, to some, to some planning, to some English, what, what, where are you going? Well, this is, uh, you know, right now I'm very much focused on preparing for China and, but there is a life after competition. Every athlete must come to this for some, a cliff edge for others. It it may not be that drastic of a precipice, but uh, thinking about what are you going to do after competition days are over that can give you a sense of purpose and fulfillment and and that's difficult and for everybody it's going to be a different answer for me i found in the last few years since graduating from school working with a company started by my friend called o2x we're teaching firefight primarily law enforcement first responders federal employees national guard and even sports teams resilience. I'm a resilience specialist for O2X, but they do a lot of comprehensive workshops on mental and physical well-being. And and I'm a, a very small piece of that bigger machine, but it's been great to be part of this organization and they're doing really great work. And, and I can see a future there. I can see a future in giving talks. I could see a future in trying to be a teacher in maybe more of a traditional academic setting. That is interesting because that's that's when I looked at what you were doing, I was like, okay, is he going to be a teacher, going to be a professor or something at some point? And I don't know. It 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 sounds like what what kind of made sense, but obviously Beijing is is first and foremost right now is preparing for that. You said you were able to go in 2018 without any expectations. Do you have any expectations for 2022? My expectation is is simply just to train and then perform to my potential, and and really that that is all you can ever hope for. There there are so many variables outside of my control that determine what some result sheet is going to be in the end, and and so I just I just want to focus on on my own preparation, having a, a physical game plan. Part of which is the training plan leading into it, physical preparation plan, but also a mental plan, and then adhere to that. And then on the day of the race, just kind of you know, taking one race at a time. And within that race, being kind of aware of the present moment and really maybe just focusing on that and not dwelling upon something that may have been favorable or unfavorable, but is in the past because it's over, not dwelling too much on the future just really kind of when you're skiing you're skiing in that hill in front of you that's what you're focusing on so if i can do that then i think it's a success for me and then and then also just trying to enjoy the experience of it because well there's certainly uh, a lot going on with the china games and we didn't get to go out there the year prior as you normally would for a test event. So don't really know what the course is going to be like. Didn't really have a chance to provide the feedback that athletes normally do. There's certainly a lot of geopolitical stuff going on. So a lot of these things are externalities. I actually have no control over them. So I'm going to be focusing on what I can control, which is my own preparation and performance. You mentioned a couple of times the being in the moment in on race day, the the hill that's directly in front of you. Is that something that you typically do well, or is that something that remains a challenge for you? Is getting into that mindset and just being in the moment? It's a total challenge for me. I have this overactive brain, just thinking, 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 thinking. So I have incorporated my own form of mindfulness training where I try to focus on my breath my mind inevitably wander. I mean, if anybody's mind wanders, uh, I try to eat, if I can even 
focus on my breath for 10 seconds, but trying to train, I guess, my ability to notice that it's wandered a little sooner without judgment and then bring it back. Because in a, the course of a race, a cross country race can range from two to three minutes up to maybe 45 or 50. You got a lot going on in your head because you're dealing with pain. And this, that is what this sport is about, training your body and your mind to withstand and endure pain. And, and there's a conversation going on in your head. And I think even in the longer races, it's more difficult to stay in the moment because you have a little less of an intensity and to stay focused. And so when you can know, if I think any athlete can recognize that when, when you are in the, when you're in it, like watching a good movie, you're just in this, you're not having to tell yourself, oh, this is a movie that I'm watching this. You're just, you're in this experience that when you are like that as, as a performer, as an athlete, that, 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 that can be a very powerful way to perform to the best of your ability. And, and so I think, I think mindfulness work is, is an important thing. And certainly in the sport of biathlon, there's a, a big mental component. Oh, a huge mental component, just to be able to focus on, focus on five targets. I mean, focus on one target, focus on the second target, the third target, the fourth target, the fifth target, and then go ski and go and not take the targets with you when you're out there skiing or the next targets or whatever. And so you mentioned that you're doing some breathing exercises, the mindfulness. Do you do anything when you train specifically to be able to, to bring yourself into that moment where it is like competition? Because, you know, some days you can be out there, you're out for your, for your long workout, doing whatever you have to do and thinking, oh, you know, I'm, I'm wondering what I'm going to, you know, what do I have for dinner tonight? You know, what am I going to, uh, what am I, maybe I'll watch something on Netflix. What am I going to read? You know, like, how do you bring yourself into that in your training so that it is, so it's not just physical training, right? That's the hard part is that we often associate training with the physical part, but not necessarily the mental part. What have you incorporated? Yeah, yeah. When when I was in graduate school, I, I found that I had workouts that were much more focused because of the time demands upon me, and so I was really making making the most of it, and was very focused. And then the rest of the day was just crammed with other stuff that had nothing to do with training. But I tried to think of it as recovery, so I would you know, make sure that I had snacks and, and water and everything. Now, when I kind of I am a full-time athlete and in any given day, I may have other demands based on whatever's going on, but, but that it's not necessarily as inherently focused, but I can do other things to kind of channelize it. And if, if I'm doing running and shooting or skier and shooting combinations, most of my training outside of training camps is solo training. So I've had to, learn how to motivate myself. And a lot of this just comes from the habit of, of the automaticity of waking up, eating breakfast, training, waking up, eating breakfast, training day after day after day. But within training sessions, you can, let's say you're going to do a skier shoot combo interval combo, and it's going to be eight interval shooting stages. You can break that up into, okay, I'm going to, this is a four stage biathlon break four stage biathlon and, you know, thinking about it that way or trying to uh, create distractions through listening to uh, podcasts, for instance, or, or just something where you're, you're, because, because when we shoot in races, there is an announcer broadcasting the race. And so you may be doing well in the race and the announcer may be recognizing that fact and that <laughs> in your last stage right now, it, you really can't afford to miss a shot here because you're going to lose your spot or, or, or that this other athlete who just finished shooting right as you lay down and you just happen to see that they cleaned, hit all their shots. Uh, you know, th there's some distraction elements. So trying to incorporate that into, into training is, is useful. And then, I, and then, you know, you can, you can visualize things like, okay, what are the, what are the Russians our biggest competition? What are they doing right now? I'm sure they're training hard, you know, this kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, you, you really have to, you have to shape your mind and you have to, you have to make it a game to a certain extent that you can actually, that you can actually win. Right. Because 
mental training is is such a is such a challenge that you never it's easy enough to not really know where you are until it becomes the critical time and then recognize that you're not where you thought you were yeah it's it's it, in my experience it's been interesting to see how the mind directs the body to perform but through that performance repeatedly the body then shapes the mind and so it's a cycle and when you when you get there it's a it's a it's a good thing that that this can happen that the mind directs the body the body in turn shapes and directs the mind through this through this and and in in training through difficult structured training you the body performing you know this intensity these interval sessions all this stuff it, it's actually training the mind to endure pain because you don't want to show up on race and like digging deep in a way that you hadn't done. You're going to go hard, maybe harder than you did in an interval session. But if you've trained appropriately, you now have the capacity to do more work, even though the pain, the pain is always going to be a constant, but the pain of someone who has done the work and the output is higher than if that same person had not quite done the work, if, if that, that, that callousing effect. So what, yeah. which events will you do when you're in Beijing? I imagine uh, I, I'm also being a little forward in, in even assuming that I would be in Beijing. We still have a selection process. So I should, sure. I should say right. that I would imagine if I go to Beijing, if I make the team that I would, enter three biathlon races, uh, probably a cross-country sprint. And there's maybe two other individual cross-country races. One is a middle distance. In Pyeongchang, it was a 7.5 kilometer, but in Sochi in 2014, it was a 10 kilometer. So they're changing the distances here and there. And, and then there's a long distance cross-country race. And that that's going to, I'm going to have to take a hard look at that one because that that is a very fatiguing race and it, it kind of depends where they put that in the six race series. And then, and then we have uh, opportunities for some relays and I, I don't know if I'd be on the relay team. Yeah. Okay. Well, that sounds interesting. And coming off of Pyeongchang, that was six medals in Pyeongchang, right? That was a gold, four silvers and a bronze. It, it was, it was, uh, you know, for me, I've never in a, it, most of our world cups and world championships are six race series. The, the maybe seventh and eighth race are relays but six individual races, I've never, never had that kind of consistency. So to do that during the games for me was a major accomplishment because it seemed like in the past, my peak was always a little bit off. Maybe if you want to peak in March, I'm peaking in January. The games for us are typically in March, which is late. It's late. It's the very end of the season world championships are typically January, February, but maybe in a world champs year, I wasn't peaking then. And so I just had some issues of not aligning everything in an appropriate way. And it, and it happened that year. And it was interesting because of my graduate school stuff, I couldn't do the fall training camps. I showed up in December for a world cup in Canada, really out of shape. But by the time March came around, I was dialed in. So to me, that is an indicator that I can't, there, you don't have to rush into heavy training in November and you can ease into this and, and do it right. And, and if anything, I think my tendency is to, to want to do more work and thinking that more work automatically translates into more performance, but, but it, doesn't, it doesn't always work like that. You have to rest, you have to recover. And so maybe, maybe even erring on the side of a little bit of, uh, under training. I, I don't know. It's, it's a conversation that I certainly will be having with my coach. Well, this will be interesting and, and certainly should be a product of your experience now as you're continuing to, to get older and gain more experience. But you also have the challenge of having world championships in the same year as the Paralympics. So two months before the Paralympics, you have world championships. And so you're going to have a difficult year, I would imagine. <laughs> A difficult year in, in terms of maybe maybe just if, if you were trying to peak for both of those events. Scheduling your peaks, I, I don't yeah. I don't think that there are going to be many people trying to actually peak for both. Uh, so it, it will be interesting though to see how that 
how that goes. And, and it's a conversation again, to have, to have with my coach as we kind of formulate a strategy for the season. Awesome. Well, Dan, thanks so much for joining us, for staying awake for us. It's uh, what it's eight o'clock, eight Oh five on the East coast. You have to stay awake for another couple of hours. Don't you? I, I do. I was up at 4 AM this morning. I landed coming back from a ski tunnel camp in Germany yesterday, landed at about in Boston at about 6 PM and really tried to stay awake until 10 PM. Woke up at 4 AM wide awake, could not fall asleep. So your questions were uh, invigorating, invigorating enough to keep me awake. I do appreciate that. And uh, I just have to hang on for at least about another hour and a half. So I'll probably hour and get, a half up or and so. get up and start moving around. Well, it's, it's all resilience training, Dan. Let's see how you can make it work. So yeah. thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for sharing your story with us. Best of luck in this, in this great year. And we will, we will look forward to seeing you on television. Sounds good, Chris. Thanks for, for taking the time to, uh, to reach out and to, to schedule this. And I hope to see you this winter, maybe perhaps in Park City. Let me know. Let me know when you're here. Maybe I can, can, uh, can do one lap for every four of yours or something. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Take care. That'd be awesome. Now, thank you to all of you for joining. Uh, the greatest gift you can give to any of to all of us is really just telling your friends. You know, if you've enjoyed what you've seen, please share it with your friends. Please, please tell people about it. This will be a podcast. We will edit it and and publish it in Apple, Google, uh, all of the all of the usual suspects, Spotify. So please like us. Please follow us. Please tell your friends and please tune in next Wednesday. We'll have another great guest. Thanks a lot. Take care.